The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, we'll go ahead and turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We have um, basically uh, two more messages in chapter 12, then we will get to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which of course is very famous, inspired of course to be used at weddings everywhere. Not, okay, (laughs) fits in between two other passages, right, context, classic text though. So we're going to start reading in, um, in verse 20. Paul says, but now there are many members, but one body, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again, the head to the feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, it's much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow or even clothe more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, you are Christ's body and individually members of it. One of my favorite things to read is the Babylon Bee. If you know the Babylon Bee, you'll know that this is Christian satire at its finest. And I saw this today, and it goes with the sermon, so I'm going to share it. So the title of the article is, Church with United in Name Undergoes Fourth Split. And the sign outside the church says, First United Grace Christian Church of Christ. The article says... This is satire. This isn't real. You have to tell people that. According to sources within First United Grace Christian Church of Christ, the church with United prominently displayed on its sign-out front is currently undergoing its fourth split of the last two decades. The controversy that led to the split reportedly concerns the flavor of coffee grounds provided for parishioners each Sunday. The split prior to that was centered around the color of the carpet, while the split before that was about the pastor's facial hair. Nobody still at the church can remember what the congregation's first split was about. Our church has united in the name because we think it's really important to be united with those people who agree with you On every minute doctrine, said the church's new pastor, who just took over the job of a pastor who was voted out in a narrow congregational decision. We are all one in the Lord, at least the first United Grace Christian Church of Christ Christians are. He then claimed that everyone attending the new congregation that split off this current congregation are going to hell. You people at Second Second United Grace Christian Church of Christ, oh yeah, you're definitely going to burn. Now, <laughs> now it, it, of course, the purpose of satire actually is to make a point, right? And unfortunately, uh, there's a uh, point being made with that article, right? And that is Christians are not really known for their unity, 
as much as they're known for their divisions. I remember I was preaching one time in Louisiana, and I kept noticing, um, well, churches everywhere, but I kept noticing a certain type of church. Finally, I mentioned to the guy that was driving me around, I said, there sure are a lot of those kinds of churches around here. And he said, they're all family members. And they get mad at each other and then go and start another church. Okay? And so there was probably a dozen churches that all split off because two brothers were pastors and then they split and then on and on and on it goes. If there's anything that is true about 1 Corinthians 12, it is that Paul wants us to understand the unity and the diversity of the body of Christ and that the glory of the diversity is that it is rooted in unity, all right? And so we've seen in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, this this unifying spirit baptism. So all of us, right? So Paul's speaking to to the Corinthian assembly Everyone that is in Christ has been baptized in one spirit, into one body. We've all been drenched or immersed or saturated by the same spirit. And so the very idea that we're in this body is, um, is a reflection of the fact that it is the work of the spirit that has, that has bound us together. Paul then goes on and he talks about that the body is one, but it has many members. And he begins to emphasize the fact that that there really is a a beautiful, wonderful diversity within, within the body of Christ. And he says somewhat in summary fashion in verse 14, for the body is not one member but many. And then he starts to illustrate and he says, um, hypothetically, verse 15, if the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it's not for this reason, not a part of the body. And so there is this, um, I noted last week that it could have been uh, either an inferiority complex or uh, those with greater gifts looking down, so this were a superiority complex. But you have people saying, well, because I don't have that gift, I must not really be a part of the body. And Paul basically says, that is really a dumb argument. That's a really dumb thing to say. You don't stop being a part of the body because you're not this member, but instead you're that member. And so here's the, here's the reality is that it is God himself who has actually sovereignly placed the members of the body in the body just as he willed. So it is, it is the diversity which is a reflection of God's very will. The fact that we're not all the same is a reflection of God's will. The fact that there is a a, a wonderful diversity among us is the will of God. And so Paul is is trying to help these Corinthians who, of course, really had such such an elitist view and and elevated in in, in tongues in particular uh, so that Paul will have to turn around and basically say, if everybody was just an arm, you wouldn't actually have a body. If everybody had the same gifts, you wouldn't have a body. If everybody was the same part, you wouldn't have the body. And so there is this, there is this, this wonderful diversity that Paul is driving at that the Corinthians really were having such a hard time to see, see him. and um, you know, when, when you think about it in terms of practical, practical terms, you look at the way that God brings people together, and it's His masterpiece. 
there's a, there's a, the, the manifold wisdom of God in bringing together the people that he brings together. And there are things that, that, that some of you are gifted to do that others aren't. And, and the issue isn't to lord it over those that don't have your gift, nor is it to be envious of somebody because they have a gift that you don't. You recognize that the differences are ordained by God himself. I think, you know, I, I think of, uh, and I don't want to embarrass him, but it just is the example that comes to mind. I think of Phil and, I, and Bob and just the, 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 the freeness with which they talk to people about the gospel and the way they engage people in conversation. And uh, I went to a, a, a Bob Dylan concert once. Actually, I've been to two, but I went to one that was where Bob works. And I, I stood back and I watched Bob draw three different people, and a, a, a couple and then two individuals. And you know, with every single person he drew... He engaged. And how much time do you have to draw somebody? Okay. So you sta- I'm standing there, I'm watching, and I watch him with every person engage them in a conversation about Christ. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, that seems, I have a really hard time getting myself to talk to somebody on an airplane, Right? I mean, they're stuck with me. They're volunteering and giving you money to talk to them about Jesus. I mean, how much better does that get, right? And so you get all these, all these different gifts, you know, and I think of Steve and Molly out at Refuge, okay? Ariel and I and the kids lived at Refuge for six months, you know? I was, I was ready to leave quickly, all right? I mean, I don't understand how you hang out with pregnant women all the time and minister to them. And I mean, I've lived with one pregnant woman, and that was enough for me, really. And, uh, you know, so God puts different people together that have different abilities and different gifts and different strengths, and, and the, the, the diversity and the differences are, um, are a glorification of God's wisdom. And Paul wants these Corinthians to understand this. And so in verse 21, he says, actually, verse 20 is the, is the summary statement. Now, we who are many members, but one body. And so then the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. The head to the feet, I have no need of you. Verse 22, then, Paul now starts to, uh, in a sense, refute this superiority complex, right? So evidently, there were some in the Corinthian assembly that were basically saying, well, you know what, since, since, since this is my gift or this is what I am, I don't have, an, I don't have need of you. Okay. You, could, you could easily imagine that kind of complex, right, where you're thinking that you are so spiritual. You don't really need these other people that just, don't live up to your standards. Right? Paul says, you can't say to another member of the body, I don't need you. He says, on the contrary. That's verse 22. But on the contrary, he's now going to, to uh, correct this, but he's going to correct it in a way that is actually a, a little shocking. And I will keep all of the shocking comments PG, all right? But it's shocking. And so Paul says, so on the contrary, instead of being able to say, oh, because you're not this, I don't need you, Paul's going to turn around and he says, the parts of the body that seem weaker actually are the more necessary parts of the body. Now, they have an appearance of weakness, Commentators go around as to 
Does Paul have something in particular in mind as far as weak parts? And um, Gordon Fee says, uh, probably the idea of internal organs that are so delicate that they need to be protected by a rib cage or something like that. That's fairly creative, and I don't know if that's what Paul has in mind. But let's just say that the weaker members are those that just that just don't seem to be that important. They don't seem to be designed to carry that big of a load. So last week, uh, John Schuler said, what did he say? He was, he was a gallbladder. Was that, is that it? A gallbladder? Yeah. I mean, you know, and you think, oh yeah, I had mine out years ago. Who needs a gallbladder? Because thou art a gallbladder, I have no need of thee. Okay. Okay. Paul's saying, listen, there are certain body parts that appear to be weak. And they're the ones that are all the more necessary. Now, I don't know exactly what Paul may have in mind anatomically, but let's just point out the fact that without these, quote, appearing weaker body parts, there's no life without them. There's no whole body function without them. Paul says, you you need those that look weak. They need to be in the body. And and by the way, do you understand that that even that principle in and of itself is is profoundly countercultural, right? So what Paul is saying is, is that you need the people that seem to be the least productive. You need the people that seem to be the least impressive. You need to be, you need the people in the body that other people don't want. Do you know what that means? It means that children are a vital part of the body. Little kids are a vital part of the body. Do we treat them like that? Now, to be sure, we're not Presbyterians that sprinkle water on them and say that they're covenant members, okay? But the children of church members are a vital part of a local church life. And yet, what do we do? Broadly speaking, we treat them as if they are some sort of special subclass that needs to be uh, ushered out right before the word of God is preached. That's ridiculous. Here, we're going, to, we're going to take our children who are the weaker members and what we're going to do is we're going to send them out to color and play with trucks before we do the big people stuff like preach the word of God. So apparently we no longer believe that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Or we have failed to read our Bibles carefully enough to realize that as Paul writes, for instance, to the Ephesians and the Colossians, a letter which would have been read in the assembly, he addresses children, which, assu- which, which must mean he assumed they would be there to hear it. Not to mention the tradition of ancient Israel that everyone who had the ability to hear actually heard the word. You see that in Ezra and Nehemiah, as well as the book of Joshua. And so in Paul's day, you know, children, children were, were really a throwaway class. You know, not seen, not heard, out of sight, out of mind. And yet Jesus teaches us otherwise when it comes to children. Okay. 
And so these little ones, these weak ones, are a vital part of a local church life. As well as the old ones. You, you, you have to understand the church, the church stands as, as a great countercultural bulwark, which means we value children when society doesn't. And it means we value the elderly when society doesn't. And there is a sense in which in which the elderly, the those that are uh, that are now physically weak and sometimes entering into because of the twilight of life into even mental weakness. Um, the fact is, as Paul says, they appear to be the weaker members, but they're necessary for you. Necessary. The gray hairs are necessary. I've been to a lot of pastors' events, and you would be surprised at how some would boast. Almost all of people in our church are 20s and 30s. You know what? I wouldn't go to that church if it was the last church. Well, that's an exaggeration. (laughs) That would not be the church I would want to go to. Oh, all all of our leadership are in their 20s. Are you kidding me? Okay, the children have taken over the nursery. Okay? And so... There is a sense in which the church has to be a multi-generational church. You have the old and you have the young, and then you have the people in between. And the people that are in between, some are on the younger end of the spectrum, some are on the older end of the spectrum, but guess what? Everybody should be represented, right? And so Paul says, listen, the, the, the ones that you deem to be the weaker members, they're necessary, absolutely necessary. You need the children. You need the older people. You need people that have wisdom, right? Well, what in the world would we be thinking if, I mean, what, what if you came to Grace Community Church and, and, and I was the oldest guy? Well, you'd say, man, they've got some <laughs> Pretty old guys serve in here because there was a time where I thought 51 was pretty old. Now I think it's incredibly young. All right? Okay? <laughs> yeah. See? Now, but I'll tell you what. There are some of you that started coming to grace when you're my age right now. Okay? Some of you were in your 50s. And now you've been young, now you're old, okay? But it is that spectrum that gives a vibrancy to the body of Christ, right? What do you think our young people uh, learn when, when they see Beverly Long heading towards the doors and the young men get an opportunity to run over and open the doors and hold the doors for Mrs. Long, right? The body all works together, all works together. And so we have, young, uh, we have a, a young elder, right? We have a middle-aged elder. We have old elders, <laughs> okay? And we need them all. I'm thankful that Vic is nearing that century mark. (laughs) Gives me great comfort. 
And what Paul says here is the weaker are actually necessary. This is a principle, by the way, that Paul is always hammering on, isn't it? What, uh, in Corinthians, what's weak? Well, the message of the cross is weak. It has the appearance of weakness, but in reality, it's the power of God. What else is weak in Corinthians? Paul is weak. But it is, it is in Paul's weakness that God's power is displayed. And so when he comes to the body, the idea of those that appear to be weak, guess what? Paul has a worldview in which um, that which appears to be weak and that which appears to be strong is turned right upside down on its head. And God is glorified in the weak members. God loves weakness. He loves displaying his strength through weakness. If you feel weak, rejoice. God delights to use the weak. So those weak members, Paul says, they are absolutely necessary. Then he says, those members which we deem to be dishonorable. Okay. Now, by the way, there's uh, really, there's some great uh, plays on words here that you don't really necessarily get in our translations So there are members that we deem dishonorable, okay? So the unmentionable parts. Paul then says, but you know what we do? We bestow greater honor on them because we cover them. Okay? Just follow Paul's argument here. He says, therefore, these these unmentionable, unmentionable members actually have a greater presentability because they've been they've been clothed there's a there's a decorum associated with the unmentionables Gordon Fee says most likely he means that the parts that appear to be weak and less worthy are in fact accorded the greater honor of having more important functions and receiving special attention. So Paul says, we, you, you have it all backwards. You have it all upside down. You have these categories of, of shameful parts and dishonorable parts and unmentionable parts and weak parts, but those are the very parts that God deems the most important. And those are the parts that God actually honors and, and, and dignifies in a way that, that your face doesn't get. You don't go around covering your face all day, right? You don't say, my face is very important, but it's an unmentionable. Your face is just out there. Paul says, listen, you've got the whole economy of the body upside down. You need to start thinking differently about how people fit in. And then he says this. This is is really quite, quite wonderful. We sort of marveled at this yesterday in our in our Greek class, he says, middle of verse 24, but God has, uh, let me say uh, 24a, whereas our more presentable members, so like your face, don't have need to be uh, of decorum covering, all right? That's the point of 24a. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked. And so here's this, here's this wonderful picture. Uh, God has, God himself is the one who's mixed the body together. This is, this is really quite a, a fascinating 
word. It's a magnificent word. So uh, Bauer and Gingrich says, to bring about a blend, so think of this, to bring about a blend by mixing various items. To blend together, to unite, to effect a harmonious unit. This is what God, this is what God has done. Um, New American Standard says compose, and compose actually is, is, is a pretty good word. God's composed the body. And so you can think about it in, in, in different ways. So here's God, let's say, as the master chef who has brought together all of the right ingredients in the right way, in the right proportion to produce exactly what, he's wanted, what he wants to produce. Or you can think of it as God as the master architect who has brought all of the pieces of the, of the building together to, to make this beautiful edifice or, or structure. Or you could think of it as God as, as the perfect composer who has put all of the notes in at just the right place. Doesn't, doesn't music fascinate you? Music fascinates me. I'm about as, as, as ignorant of music as I am of Sanskrit. Okay? In fact, I probably know more about Sanskrit than I do music. <laughs> Never mind. And I marvel at music. I marvel at the way that, uh, that a melody comes together. I marvel at the way that that notes are put together and chords are put together in order to 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 move the heart. You, 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 I mean, this is really an astonishing thing when you think about it, right? You, you have people that you have you have these little black marks on a on on these four lines. There's four lines, right, Allie? Or there? Oh, there's five. Okay, yeah. So anyway, that's oh, good. There's five. I, I I'm glad to hear that. So there's five. <laughs> there's five lines, and you get these little marks. And these little marks are all intricately put on that page. You don't just look at it and go, oh, I think I put a mark there. They're all intricately put there to create a masterpiece. That's what God's done with the body. You have minor keys and you have crescendos and staccatos and, and uh, vibratos and whatever else may be. And God brings it all together just exactly the way that he wants to compose the symphony that we call the church. And it's God that does it. You, you, you have to understand that, 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 that when the church is, is really sort of the, the work of man, it loses its divine composition. It loses its, its, its beautiful architecture. It, it loses that sense of, of, of God being the, the perfect chef who's brought together everything. And so we can try to manipulate and try to get this group and, and be in church that ministers to that niche. And like we were talking about last week, that principle of homogeneity. Hey, let's bake a cake and just use flour. White flour. God says, you know, I am so much better at this than you are. And I know what you need way more than you do. And I know the people that are going to be a blessing to you. And I know the people who are going to be sanctifying to you. And, and, and I know how you are going to be a sanctifying influence on others and how you need that person and that person. And we think to ourselves, well, <clears throat> I don't really get along with that person. God knows that. 
And that's why they're there. (laughs) Oh, this will change your perspective on how you get along with people in the church when you realize this is God's composition and he's written the notes and you're a note and that other note that you think doesn't sound like a very good note. God says that's the note that you need right next to you to make you sound better. So live with it. Paul has already emphasized the fact the Spirit himself, the same Spirit has given gifts to each person. God has actually placed each person in the body just as he wills, 1218. And now it's God who has actually brought this, this glorious mixture together in the body. And then notice the purpose for which God does this in order that there be no schism in the body. That's interesting. God composes the body in his own sovereign plan so that there would be no schism in the body, no division. So evidently, God has this idea that the more the diversity, the better the unity. Huh. That's not the way we think, right? I mean, let's face it. You sit there and listen to the news on your radio or or watch it on TV, and you know what you're thinking? You're thinking, if everybody was just more like me, this world would be a much better place. And we start thinking that way about the church. If, if, If people were just more like me, the church would be the happiest place on earth. Next to Disneyland. And God says, no, 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 no. Incredible diversity orchestrated by my sovereignty so that there wouldn't be any division in the body. Do you know what would create incredible division in the body? If everybody was just like you where everybody was just like me. Do you know why diversity serves unity? Because it forces us to learn to love people we wouldn't ordinarily love and get along with people we wouldn't ordinarily get along with. And all of a sudden, there is this there is this magnificent sense of this person's a brother, this person's a sister, that, that person has the same Holy Spirit, that person loves the same Lord Jesus that I love. They're so different than me. They look different, they sound different, they act different, they eat different. They are totally different. But what holds us together is so much greater than what makes us different. So Paul says, God does this in order that there be no schism in the body. So differences in diversity should not lead to division. Do you believe that Jesus cherishes unity in his church? I'm pretty sure he does because I've read one of his prayers about it. Jesus cherishes unity in his church because his church is his body and his body should be one. Do you think that the Holy Spirit cherishes unity in the body? Absolutely. So Paul tells us that we should be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Do you think that the cross affects unity in the body? 
The cross has taken down the dividing wall between us and God, and it's also taken down the dividing wall between one another. The peace that is effected by the cross of Jesus is not only a vertical peace, it's a horizontal peace. And so Jesus cherishes that peace. It was, it was purchased at great cost. The Spirit has been given to us to effect that peace. And I'm not talking about some sort of, uh, some sort of doctrinally amorphous unity where we just all forget our doctrinal differences, hold hands, sing kumbaya, and then, uh, you know, throw another stick on the fire. I'm talking about genuine gospel unity. Genuine spirit wrought unity. And we should love that. We should love it. You know, one of the things that I am so unbelievably thankful for is that we've been going for 25 years and we've never had a church split. I don't take that for granted for a second. And I cherish it and long to protect it. And so Paul says, the reason we're all different is to serve the unity of the body so there be no division in the body. And then he turns around and he says, but, so here's so no division in the body, but that the members have the same concern for one another. You learn to love people and can be concerned about people who are different than you. That same concern for one another, looking out for one another, caring for one another, regardless of gifts, regardless of function, regardless of position, regardless of roles, God puts us together so that we can look out for each other and care for each other. I have... always disdained the idea that somehow we were simply a preaching station. Do I believe in preaching? You better believe I do. Okay. Better believe I do. Do I believe in biblical preaching and earnest preaching and passionate preaching and preaching that searches the heart and the answer is yes, 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 yes. But the church is more than preaching. The church is about brothers and sisters loving each other, looking out for each other, caring for each other, being there for each other in their time of need. And so here you have this, this really this beautiful uh, expression. And then Paul describes what he means in verse 26. This is what it is for, for us to care for each other. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And with, if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. And so here's what, it, here's what it looks like. Here's what life together looks like and one another care looks like. It looks like when you hurt, I love you enough to hurt with you. And you, me. So if one member suffers, you know what Paul actually says? All the members co-suffer And that word in Greek, by the way, for co-suffer is the very word from which we get our word sympathize. Sympathize is to suffer with. This This is life together. This is what it is to care for each other. And so if you have 
family problems or marriage problems or sin problems, sickness problems, suffering. We share in each other's losses and share in each other's griefs. Which, by the way, has to be predicated upon involvement with each other. If I don't know you're suffering, I can't suffer with you. Well, I'm kind of a kind of a private person, kind of play it close to the vest. Get saved then and be different. There's no room for that in the body of Christ. It's pride. Pride, pure and simple. Well, I don't, I don't want to discourage people by having, the, having them see me suffer. Yeah, that's exactly what Jesus said, right? He suffered for all of us to see. So we suffer with each other and we rejoice. So when somebody's honored, literally Paul says, when one member is glorified, all the other members rejoice. They co-rejoice. Now, St. Chrysostom said that it's probably easier to sympathize with people than to rejoice with them. He says, sometimes envy can get in the way, right? Praise God, you got a promotion. I didn't. One body says, you know what? Because, I, because God's wired me to think of more other, others as more highly than myself. Praise God, you got the promotion. Your marriage is thriving. Mine stinks. Praise the Lord. You've got money. I don't. Hallelujah. Share with those who are in need. (laughs) So this one another care is just, it's just a reflection of just entering into each other's lives where, where, where gifts to each other. In a highly privatized, individualistic America, it's really hard to think about how to be a gift to somebody else. But I would just remind you that a highly privatized, individualistic America is not the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a hymn, and we'll stop here. Uh, I've told you this story before, but it it really bears repeating. So there's this old pastor, his name was John Fawcett, uh, I believe he pastored in a place in England called Waynesgate. And he was there, and he pastored there for about 20 years, and he just loved the people, just poured himself into their lives, and his wife did as well. And his sermons became more and more known, and, and uh, he, got, he got called to a larger church. And so he prayed about it and talked to the church about it, and they were reluctant, but... They said, you know, you should go. And, and so they loaded up the wagon and they had all their belongings there. And as, as John Fawcett and his wife got ready to head out, the people stood there, melted in tears. And John Fawcett and his wife were melted to tears. And the wife turns to her husband seated up on that wagon and said, John, how can we leave these people? They're our family. John Fawcett said, you're right. Deacons, unload the the wagon. (laughs) And then he wrote a song. 
Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. Before the Father's throne, we pour our ardent prayers, our fears, our hopes, our aims are one, our comforts and our cares. We share our mutual woes, our mutual burdens bear. Did you get that? We share our mutual woes, our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other flows the sympathizing tear. When we asunder part, it gives us inward pain, but we shall still be joined in heart and hope to meet again. This glorious hope revives our courage by the way, while each in expectation lives and longs to see the day. From sorrow, toil, and pain, and sin, we shall be free. And perfect love and friendship reign throughout eternity. This is truly God's forever family. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the body of Christ. Lord, we thank you for each other tonight. We thank you for the differences the diversity. But we thank you, Father, most of all for what binds us together. A common faith in a common Lord indwelt by the same Spirit. And so, Father, receive our thanks tonight. Help us to think through the, the lens 1 Corinthians 12, as we think about the church. We pray, Father, that for each other's good, and really for your glory, that we would share our sorrows and our joys with each other, since we belong one to another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.